Welcome to Hotel Bar Sessions, Episode 2. Today's topic, art. Hey, listeners, welcome back. I am joined here today with my co-hosts, Ammon and Lee. How's it going, guys? Hey, What's up, Shannon. Shannon? Good to see you. Good to see you. Good to hear you. So listeners, as you know, this podcast is structured in such a way that we want to recreate the feeling and energy and excitement and just friendship that forms at the end of a day at a conference where we come together at the hotel bar and shoot the breeze about what we've learned and been thinking about that day in philosophy. So what I'm going to do now is introduce Ammon's topic, which is on art. And I am very excited about this because I have found myself really trying to think through what exactly art is and how we talk about it now. So Ammon, enlighten us. <laughs> I'm not sure if I can enlighten us. Actually, I, mean, I wish we actually had drinks right now because I think a lot of folks who work on aesthetics, or maybe this is just me, Sometimes I have a little bit of insecurity about that topic. I think some of us philosophers take it very seriously and love it, but a lot of times it's relegated to a, a corner of the philosophical world. And today I want to defend why I think that's wrong. Sometimes I want to say I want to explain why we as philosophers should take art more seriously. And I don't think I want to do that. I actually think I want to talk with you guys about if there are ways in which philosophy would be enriched by playing around with ideas about aesthetic experiences a little more and by being open to some of the odd ways in which reasoning can work when you start to think about the myriads of aesthetic experiences that are out there and how they intersect with our reasoning. I'm really excited to hear you approach it this way because I was thinking as I was getting excited to hear what you had to say about art today that Aesthetics and art experiences, it seems to also be a really contentious. It's not just relegated to the corner, but people get really contentious about what counts as art, what counts as an aesthetic experience, who's saying that they are an expert in these kinds of things. And so that's always my trepidation. Yeah, I just want to echo what Shannon said. I really am excited about this conversation too. And I was really worried about it because I was thinking to myself, I don't know that I could define what art is. And I don't know <laughs> that I could tell you what an aesthetic experience is. And I also want to say that I'm coming off like just moments ago, before we started recording, watching the YouTube video of the recent CPAC. <laughs> someone, so, at, someone at CPAC sang an atonal polka version of the national anthem. And my first thought was, I should ask Ammon if there's any art that should be banned. You know, because <laughs> if there is, that's it. <laughs> and is this Wait, art? <laughs> so I haven't I haven't seen that yet. Were they intentionally doing an atonal polka version or did it? Yeah, they were matching it to the girl who was singing the anthem. And so they would change it according to whatever minor or major chord or tempo wow. that she goes to. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. There's a lot <laughs> renditions of it. People have just done all sorts of ways of, of, which is actually, I was thinking sort of the same thing, Lee, right? Taking this complete disaster of a presentation of the American anthem and doing something to it that maybe makes it art. Wait a minute. Okay. Sorry, but Wait. no, the, the video of it is actually how it was performed at the polka. Yes. It was not, no. that was not, no, that was not a meme. That was not a, That's real? a, a remix. That is actually how it was performed. And it is. Wait, no, wait, wait, but not to polka music. 
Yes. What you heard is what was performed at the CPAC convention. What was the what was the rationale? I'm going to bring it up and maybe play a little bit. Let's play some of that. That'll be fun. But, well, so, talking, so, but then in that case, then, then she's a genius because totally, she matched totally. the, the music. Exactly. Yeah. I don't buy it. I don't buy it. All right. Sorry, Ammon. We're going to have to just pause. This, is, no, this is much more important. No, actually, I mean, have while, to see we, this polka rendition. Let me know, Lee, let me know when you're ready. But while we're waiting here, actually, one of the things that I wanted to talk about is it's funny because I think that oftentimes we think of the paradigmatic question of the aesthetician. And I think it's really funny that you guys are like, oh, I'm intimidated to talk. Maybe my insecurity is just that we're the mean kids. I don't know. right? <laughs> but is this this idea of like, well, under what conditions can we make judgments that are binding on others? Can I have judgments about taste that bind on others? One of the things that I actually want to talk about today is like why I find that to be a less productive question. One of the things that I'm really interested in aesthetics is what I talk about as anti-normative or non-normative judgments. But I think we're going to have a normative judgment in a second here because we might have to say that this is not. But let me, okay. I have not heard it yet. So Okay, so let me just say that I'm wrong. Shannon's right. I'm now looking at it and it is someone who basically recreated the music along <laughs> with what apparently was this just completely atonal, terrible version of the national anthem. But I am going to play it for everyone. I'm very curious. I've not heard this yet, so. I'm just going to play it all the way through. Feel free to like comment as we go through. So, all right, here we go. Now I'm bummed it wasn't. Oh, say can you see Whoa. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. Oh, yeah. It gets better. It gets better. And bright stars through the perilous I love that Lee thought that this was nice tempo. actually <laughs> how it was performed. No, it was really performed like this according to polka music. Whoa. We just had like four keychains. experience having an out-of-body aesthetic experience oh wow we're intensifying here doubling down my ears are bleeding how long is this my brain is bleeding Bring it home. Bring it home. Believe in yourself. Thunderous applause. Um, wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, no, it's an so experience. Amy, explain explain yeah. how that is art. So... I, it's an so, experience. <laughs> asking whether or not that's art is, I think, maybe less instructive than asking the question, 
how does it function as art? Or an even better question, given the fact that people can remix it, that we can sit here and talk about it, what are the ways in which even, let's say, failed performances function in how we think through our shared public spaces? Is that taking place in this performance here? What was CPAC thinking? Okay, I I have a question that I think maybe dovetails with that. I imagine that the people sitting in the audience at CPAC who heard the original version of her singing that might have thought, this is just a bad version of the national anthem, right? This is a bad piece of art. This is a bad musical performance. And the experience of that bad Mm. musical performance, they did not presume that she was trying to be creative or creatively atonal or play with this very familiar tune, but that she just sang it badly. Like if I looked at a bad painting, now that I know that the sort of polka, the atonal polka (laughs) remix is something that someone else did, I think that is art. And that my whole aesthetic experience changed by knowing the context of this performance. So that to me is interesting. And I'm wondering if what I'm describing, originally when I heard it, I was like, oh, this is painful. My ears are bleeding. When I heard this is just a terrible rendition of the national anthem. I'm, and that's then, still and then later found out that it's this really clever, ironic memeing of this mm-hmm. terrible rendition of the national anthem that I'm having a totally different aesthetic experience. Is it just an aesthetic experience? That has that's the wrong there? question, Lee. That's the Hammond's wrong question. going to tell you that that's just the wrong question. Oh, no, that's, that's not what I'm sorry. That's not what I'm I mean. here. I'm here for the wrong questions. I'm still floored that Lee thought that it was originally <laughs> performed to atonal polka music because that would make her the best singer and the best performance of the national anthem that has ever happened. <laughs> Just, no, guys, really. It really was to polka music. I'm, I'm simultaneously humiliated and proud of myself. <laughs> I feel the same for you. I really want to see if I get the gist of Lee's question because it was what I was thinking too. When you first hear the national anthem, Mm -hmm. it's awful the way she performs it. And you would just say, maybe the anthem itself is a a work of art as a song, but the performance was a complete failure. Mm -hmm. But then when you hear it, put into polka music and you see the kind of creativity <laughs> that frames it, it suddenly becomes more of what we might call a work of art. And the experience itself completely changes. Yeah, because the context matters. And I think one of the questions that comes out of this, when we turn to something and we say, is this a work of art? We, we seem to have some sort of background theory about what it is that things that are works of art are supposed to do for us. So when they invited this person to perform at CPAC. She was performing a certain ritual that's a a staple of political and public life in America, and which she performed badly. Who knows why she performed it badly? We won't get into that question. But she was performing a certain ritual, and we judge that as a failure. But as you guys are pointing out, the interesting thing about a failure is that a, a failure can, in the context of a larger public conversation, go in lots of other directions. And so one of the questions that comes out of this, well, why do we care so much about aesthetic experiences 
what do we mean when we think we call an aesthetic experience good? And why are we so obsessed with the question of whether it's good or bad? Is it art or not? Why do these kinds of questions animate us as much as they seem to? So Ammon, if I am hearing the way that you're talking about this, it seems to me that you really don't want to ask the question or talk about what is art, what makes something art, that you're not really... I think it's a fair question. First of all, I'm a sort of a maximalist in my answer to that. I'm willing to grant that just about anything can be taken as a work of art. See, I don't like I, that answer. I, don't I know, like that I answer. know. Yeah. I don't like that answer because I like the possibility that maybe it's more about the experience than the object or entity right. or product. I want to hear you talk more about that, but I'm what concerned you, about the, I will count almost anything as art. Well, let me ask you, if, if you're concerned about it, what are you hoping that art does for you? I yeah. think that that reply question is not really getting at Shannon's concern. Let's imagine that she was not singing a song, but that she had written a really bad essay mm -hmm. and someone else took it and put it in a structure where now whatever she wrote, which was supposed mm -hmm. to be an exam essay, mm -hmm. is actually funny and seems creative and weirdly brilliant because yeah. it's put in a different context. And I would say that we've taken something that in its original context was serious, but poorly executed, we mm -hmm. put it in a different context. And so what has happened there is, I don't know what I would call it even like comedy and maybe comedy is an aesthetic experience, but the fact that she's singing a song right. is what I think both Shannon and I want right. to say marks the transition between an aesthetic experience of her just singing a song badly and that song being right. recontextualized in a way that it becomes a different Art, art performance, it right. becomes a different performance of a song. Yeah. So in that sense, it does matter that she's singing a song. Well, so yeah, when I say that I'm willing to count just about anything as art, that's very different than saying, I think that everything is art. Arthur Danto, who I tend to agree with on this issue, he has what he talks about as this aboutness theory of art. And essentially all it is is for something to be a work of art, it has to make a claim in the context of A or the, and we can talk about whether or not that difference matters, art world. So an essay isn't a work of art, but if you contextualize it as a song, it becomes one. Even when she's performing the national anthem badly, the reason why it's a work of art is because it is being done, as I said earlier, as a ritual or as, as in a context in which we're celebrating, a, we're engaging in a thing that we all understand to be art, and she's making a claim or performing something in that context. That's all. That's all it has to be, right? So that doesn't. So so the, the point is that anything could be art, but that doesn't mean that anything is art. Shannon, you're not happy with this answer. Well, help me understand this. Then it seems to me that you are pushing the public, or shared, or social element that comes with the question of what makes something art or an aesthetic experience. Mm. So first of all, art or an aesthetic experience, that's an important qualification. Ontologically, I think those overlap a lot. I'm not sure they're ontologically identical. I just want to footnote that for now. Fair. But go ahead. And so you're talking about this sort of ritual and that that puts it in some kind of art context, some sort of art world context. Yeah. And that therefore we talk about it as a work of art mm -hmm. and or an aesthetic experience. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah, because yeah, I, I would want to say that not all of our ritualized practices are art. I think that in this case, it's because it's a song and not because it's this ritualized practice of patriotism. I wouldn't say that when people stand up and recite the Pledge of Allegiance, right. it, if somebody flubbed that, I wouldn't say all the things that I'm saying about this, about that experience. Yeah, agreed. And so... The reason why I'm saying that this is art is because it's a ritual performance of something that we take to be art. You're right. We can have other rituals that are not art. And crucially, one key thing to keep in mind is that a lot of things that we call art now weren't art 400 years ago. And like memes. A, like memes. Well, also, like a lot of rituals. So art has a meaning in the context of our world. We have a thing that we understand as the art world. And we place a lot of things in that that would have been placed into other categories or other boxes 500, 1,000, 2,000 years ago. Can you give me an example of something that is considered art now that would not have been considered art 500 years ago? And don't say a meme because I think that that's still in the realm of visual arts. Stone knife. 100,000 years ago, a stone knife is not art. I can now go look at it and talk about the artisan who made the stone art, right? I would even say the paintings in Lasso or wherever the hell Werner, Werner Herzog goes. It's not, not just a nominalist game to say that the folks who are doing that, as far as we know, were not engaged in art making in the way that we understand the term, but we now take that to be art. But that's why I think the stone knife is better. A lot of ritual objects from around the world existed in the context of specific worlds where they've performed certain roles, a lot of times religious roles, and, and modern secular society categorizes those as art objects. Okay. I have a follow-up question then, because it seems to me that we consider the stone knife an artwork, and this is a whole other set of questions that I want to ask later, but we consider it an artwork because we put it in a museum, and that's the sort of frame of let's look at this as an artwork, and we could take things that in our actual lives are not considered mm -hmm. artworks, like a toilet, and put it in a museum, yeah. and it's going to be an artwork, right? But yeah. I guess what I'm trying to say is, forgive me because I really feel dumb asking this question, but it's a oh, no, it's okay. genuine question coming from a pure place. The question is, other than things that broadly fall in the category of the visual arts, dance, music, really only those, other than those categories, broadly speaking, plus anything that we put in a museum. Is it the case that there are things now that we consider art that were not considered art 500 years ago? I feel like you're saying other than the things that we consider art now that we didn't consider art 500 years ago, what would be something else that we consider art now that we didn't consider art 500 years ago? And I'm I mean, not just trying to be flip, but the point is that when you say, well, it's because we put it in a museum, I think there's a lot of stuff in the category of performance art that would fit in this category. And with music, too. So, for example, rises of sampling technologies drastically changed what people were willing to count as music. And, you know, the rise of noise music did similar things um, 30 or 40 years ago. But it was in the context of the world in which we talked about something as being music. We added new things in. But other than the things that we added in, I guess that's where I'm, I'm confused what you're getting at. I'm just trying to push harder on Shannon's question, mm -hmm. which is that it seems to me that you're willing to say that oh, you did actually say that 
anything can be art. I think that it is possible that changing the sort of cultural and intellectual contexts in the same way that putting something in a museum can make Mm -hmm. something art, that certain cultural and contextual changes can make something emerge as an art form as -hmm. the understanding of art changes. When do you think art as a thematic category arose in in human experience, in human history. Because you said there are things that we consider art now that we wouldn't have considered 500 years ago, like a stone knife, right? Mm -hmm. If you had said there are things that we consider art now that we wouldn't have considered 3,000 years ago, like a stone knife, I would say that's because they didn't have a concept of art. Right, yeah. So am I just engaged in a nominalist game here? Right. That's a fair question. And back to Shannon's point, when I said, let's be careful about art versus aesthetics, I'm pretty heavily nominalistic about what I'll count as art for reasons that relate to what I think about this this next issue. But part of that has to do with what my theory of aesthetic experience is, which is why I'd asked you, Shannon, earlier, and you too, also, Lee, when you're saying this is or isn't art, what's that doing for you? I actually think if we trace modern aesthetics back to Kant, I think that that's the first question of modern aesthetics is well, what's that doing for you? And so that's why I want to come back to that question. Well, so let's come back to that question because ever since you asked it, I've been thinking to myself, trying not just to reduce it to some sort of Kantian answer, but I've been thinking to myself and in the way that we've been talking about that, what does art do? Mm -hmm. And I'm having a really hard time figuring out what art does that doesn't bleed over into other kinds of experiences. So when I hear music, I feel perhaps the quickening. I Mm -hmm. feel connection to a larger community. I, I feel like there is something that is being sparked in me that no other kind of experience can give to me. Mm-hmm. But then I think, well, sometimes when I read a really good philosophical essay, I have similar kinds of experiences. Or when I have a really great conversation with a friend or my co-hosts, I have similar experiences. And so I'm just giving a sort of sincere response to mm-hmm. what you asked early on, which is what does it do for you? And I'm having a really hard time drawing boundaries. Yeah. No, I think that's right. And I think that to me is the really interesting question is why is it so hard to draw those boundaries? But also why does that boundary matter so much to us? Because right? I do matter. think it does matter. It really matters. And well, my novelism I mean. about art is, is exactly because I think it matters so much. But Okay, so why, you... why does it matter? Like, you, like, let's ask that question to you since yeah. this, you're in the hot seat. This is, your, this is your episode about your wheelhouse. Why is the aesthetic experience so important to us? And why is it important that we have boundaries for identifying those experiences? So I, I'm going to apologize. My answer is going to involve a slight detour through the history of philosophy. And... The tradition that I'm part of, the Heideggerian tradition that I'm a part of, has no problem making grand utterances about the history of philosophy. And I want to sort of bookmark that I want to be really careful with those. That said, I think it's fair to say that when we retrospectively talk about this thing called the history of philosophy, there is a huge chunk of the history of philosophy that has not only been comfortable of, but has been actively productive of an exclusion of questions about art and aesthetics as not properly philosophical. Now, this often gets traced back, of course, primarily to Plato, who is interesting about it because he actually makes this explicit. But the shorthand version of this, and I admit this is a bit of a straw man, is philosophy is nothing but arguments. Our arguments are adjudicated by 
rational activity. To use Kantian categories, you know, you need reason, the understanding, and judgment, and you can resolve most of the kinds of problems that we talk about through those things. That's it, right? We can resolve normative questions that way about ethics. We can resolve political questions that way. Scientific questions we resolve through empirical means and using the categories of reason. And art is subjective, and we're terrified of subjective things. So I think that there's a huge chunk of philosophical discourse that has been very comfortable excluding the question of aesthetic experiences. Now, I personally am persuaded for a lot of reasons that would involve going through Kant and Heidegger and Derrida that most of the arguments that are core to the core metaphysical commitments or core ethical commitments end up being undecidable. And what ends up making some people decide one way and not another way is covert aesthetic commitments that they are not fully honest about or cognizant of. So I think that by excluding questions about art from philosophy, we're removing from the court of conversation a, a lot of the grounds by which we negotiate some of our deepest and our most closely held commitments, but also our deepest disagreements with one another. If I hear you correctly, you're saying that the sort of exclusion of the question of art largely because it does involve subjective experience is problematic because that might actually tell us a lot about other kinds of interesting philosophical problems, not just problems about the question of what makes an object, an art object or an aesthetic experience. Yeah. But that becomes important because it helps us understand how aesthetic experience works, right? So, so let's get to it. In my naive response of what I think of I have happened to me and what it is that I seek out in an aesthetic experience, mm -hmm. why is that not what you're getting at? It might what be. Are what you? Okay, so then what are you getting at? <laughs> well, what is an what, aesthetic experience? Let's go back to our poor CFAC singer for a second. I, and I feel so bad because I really like, I, I want to do nothing more than run away from it, but we keep on being drawn back to it. When I say it had an aesthetic value, it, it involved a way, presumably, of performing a certain kind of secular religion that we relegate to art to do, but also trying to draw people together around shared collective norms. And I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that people who are making fun of this person and for good reasons and making better art because of it also are doing so on grounds of shared normative judgments. So the most common answer given to this question, and I I love this answer, but it's, it's complicated for me in ways that we can talk about. But the most common answer to the question is, well, we seek out these aesthetic experiences because these are ways in which we coordinate our subjective lives and ways in which we line up our shared norms with one another. So we're affirming certain values and by affirming those values, we're making it possible to share the world in certain ways. I think that in the post-Kantian tradition, and again, this already starts in Kant, most of the answers given to that question are some variation on that answer. All right. I like this. So it's a very dynamic conception, too, because I can see as different groups and different art forms and different people 
who are exploring with new ways of poetic or poiesis expression, that they would be sort of these ripples that are coming together and forming different kinds of communities and shared norms that are always in emergence, Mm. always coming into new forms all the time. And that makes it a really dynamic and exciting and, and lively notion. I guess my question to you would be, what if I, using my computer, write a a song and it's just me and I'm breaking all kinds of norms and I just listen to it and play it for myself and I'm not involving any kind of shared ritual or shared experience or communal outreach. Is that still on the same register of an aesthetic experience that you're talking about? I would say that on Ammon's definition, it sounds like that would be an aesthetic experience if for no other reason, just in the fact that you called it a song. Yeah, it's still part of a world. Even if you're not sharing it with other people, it's still part of a shared world. Now, I mean, we get into this question. I think it's an interesting one, although it's a tougher one. Is there a truly unique private universe or world? That's a different question, I think. But yeah, I think the point is it doesn't have to be shared at every moment to be part of a shared world. I really like this explanation, Amon, because it explains to me how people can have a shared aesthetic experience around what other people call bad art. So just to pick a really obvious punching bag here, reality television, which I know that you and I both really love, that is something that produces a community it's something that's shared it, okay I, so yeah. i just do not are we i really we we're, gonna say, TV. we're gonna say reality television i guess it's art because we consider cinema and television just by itself by virtue of the fact that it's a category that anything that falls under that category is art it's storytelling yeah and sometimes it's artful storytelling i think one of the bachelor of camera people does great work it's one <laughs> specific person too Especially on Bachelor in Paradise, one of the camera people, they will do these lingering shots on crabs in the ocean. It really adds to the storytelling. So there's not only is it art, I don't even know if it's bad art. There's artfulness to it in certain ways. All right, fine. I'm, but, I'm, I buy it. Yeah. Now <laughs> I that I mentioned crabs, you're like, okay. No, You're but right. I, it's, it's storytelling. But I, think, but I think the point, yeah, I think that there are shared meaning-making activities that take place around it. Okay, and, so then what is the difference between that shared meaning-making activity and Mm -hmm. writing laws or discussing politics. Yeah, one of my arguments would be, we have in our world created a certain space that we say, here's where we're willing to talk about aesthetic experiences. To be clear, I don't think that that's the only place those aesthetic experiences or aesthetics matters. So part of my argument would be that that there are aesthetic components to these things, but I'm not trying to make the claim that the that all ways of making meaning involve what I'm calling here aesthetics or evolve what I'm calling art. The main claim that I would want to defend is that when we look at how we end up ultimately adjudicating what kinds of reasons we find persuasive, or in the case of law, what kinds of values we find worth instantiating, we are very often overlooking the extent to which it relies on aesthetic judgments. And the point of aesthetic experience is to force us to think about those judgments more carefully. And that's true even in laws. All right, so I wanna ask a different kind of question. 
once something has been produced in such a way that it is art or it is an aesthetic experience, mm -hmm. can it ever stop doing that? Yeah, that's what a cliche like, is, cliches and memes. Let's talk about the national anthem some more. And I feel bad that we keep on going back. No, don't feel bad. Embrace it. We are going all the way in yeah. on this. So here will be our first controversy where we get canceled by the right on this podcast, which I'm sure will happen many times. I think that's just already a priori the case. <laughs> Most I, already, I already feel relief having known that that is going to happen. <laughs> Knowing that they're going to cancel us. Most performances of the national anthem are banal cliches, right? Yeah. Yeah. And had this particular performer done not quite so awfully, it would have fallen into the genre of banal cliches. Most of the time, we, we negotiate the world engaging with banal cliches. You're not engaging with it in any way aesthetically. That's what the cliche is, though, yeah. But you can. Wanna, it's always latent there, yeah. I want to go back then because I thought that when we first started discussing this, the idea was when Lee asked the question, it's a bad performance, and we would yeah. recognize it as a bad performance, which I think you're now saying is a banal cliche. But it's still a bad performance of art. Yeah. So it's not just that, I mean, my question was, can something stop being art? And you're like, oh. yeah, when it becomes a cliche, and then we have a lot of sort of cliche banal performances of the national anthem. And I'm saying, given the way that we talked about this at the beginning, it seems like it's still art. It's just bad, boring, banal, cliche art. Yeah, no, you're right about that. Yeah, yeah I want to jump in here because I, this is actually really interesting to me because I think it's clarifying something about why I like karaoke performances so much. <laughs> All right. And, and it really is, in many ways, exhibited in this particularly bad performance of mm. the national anthem. So one of the things that I really love when I go and watch karaoke, like at a bar, remember mm. back when we could do those things? Oh, uh, the before times. Is, yeah, the before times is actually not the people who are great singers who perform the song either exactly like it sounds on yeah. the radio or just perfectly sung and not the people who are boring or bad or a cliche karaoke singers, but the ones who are so bad that it actually becomes a whole different experience. My experience is that now it's not just about the song and like, are they hitting all the notes that they're supposed to hit? But it's about this other experience, which is about loving a song so hard that it, you know, you're know you going yeah. all in on it, even if you can't carry a tune in a bucket. And there's something about that that gets it out of the banal cliche of just simply repeating something that I've heard many, many, many times and becomes this whole other different art experience. This is one of the things that I think is kind of interesting about this bad performance of the national anthem mm -hmm. is that it's not just a bad performance it's so bad that it becomes a whole new different piece of art and so now i'm not just shannon's laughing at me but i'm now just laughing because you thought it was originally to polka and i'm never gonna get over it i did i did but now i now i see that there is a whole different thing that's going on here and my experience actually when i listen to that is not an experience of hearing the national anthem no. It yeah. is something else, right? So I love two things that you said that I'm going to adopt as 
core aesthetic commitments for me. One was loving it so hard. What I wanted to complain about today in way too philosophy of a way was how much even my fellow aestheticians are obsessed with normative judgment. And the way that I put it now is what I'm really much more interested in than when can we all agree something is good is why do some people love something so hard? And what does that loving thing so hard do for them? So there's that. And then there's also, you said at the end, it becomes a whole other thing. So first of all, I should say back to your point, Shannon, you're right. Even banal art on my account is still art. What I was trying to say, and I had conflated the two things, was that we're engaging with it as art, but we're not engaging in the way that where aesthetic experience or aesthetic judgment really plays much of a role. But it still functions in a certain ways as art. And that's true, I think, again, back, <laughs> back to your point about karaoke, which I also love. And in a second, I want to know what both of you guys' go-to karaoke songs would be right now if we were able to, be able to do karaoke Ooh, yes. um, is that people are trying to mine something out of the cliche they're taking songs that are exactly incredibly recognizable and even if they want to perfectly mimic it and even if they do successfully in certain ways there's a function that that's doing for them that is irreducible to what's taking place in the original and that's what makes karaoke so wonderful <laughs> is you're seeing all these worlds coming together it, yeah and, and i miss karaoke so much i love this idea of tying the question of aesthetics and aesthetic experience to the question of worlds and shared yeah. worlds and i really i think that this is provocative and it's important and it's really resonating with me and i don't need to go too hard into this but but how is that different than other ways that we share worlds but I can't help but still want to know, is it just a difference in degree or is there a difference in kind in the world sharing that happens in art versus other ways that we share worlds? Institutions. Right. I, I want to just uh, note for the record here, just put this in your pocket that I do want to get back to the question of which karaoke song maybe, you should go maybe to. It's, <laughs> it's a very important question. I've got an answer, but I've got several answers. I think, Shannon, that there's a lot of overlap. One of the reasons why I personally love questions about aesthetics is I think that there is the possibility in thinking about aesthetic experience to understand how we share worlds without our norms converging. And the world is an incomplete concept, the way in which we inhabit multiple worlds that we're trying to make sense of as a shared world gets into a lot of important questions about modernity and democracy that I don't think other ways of sharing a world do. And this gets back to my complaint about the Kantian tradition. But Kant wants to show how you can engage in a normative thinking in aesthetic judgment that's like the normative thinking in ethics. And so he wants to find ways of conflating them. And I think that that is the norm in philosophical discussions of aesthetics to the detriment of philosophical discussions of aesthetics. I'm, I'm very interested in weird aesthetic experiences. And I think that weird aesthetic experiences matter philosophically in a way that we don't pay enough attention to. I think that's fair. Yeah. I like that. I have a question which is a little bit of a pivot, but I'd like to talk just for a minute about the role of the artist. Mm -hmm. And I know that you guys are going to see this coming from a mile away. So let me just go ahead and state that in the background to this question is why is it the case that people don't think that AI can create art? And I think that part of the reason is because of the contemporary presumption that machine systems are not artists. 
However, I do 100% believe that the artwork that we see produced by machine systems right now is just as good, just as interesting, and can produce the same kind of aesthetic experience that we're talking about, whether it's music or the visual arts or whatever, until someone is told that a computer made it. As you both know, my partner is an artist, and this is an argument that we have a lot (laughs) about the role of the artist and whether or not what we call creativity is something that has to originate in some kind of a human action, whether intentional or not. So that's my question. How important is the artist to aesthetic experience? Mm -hmm. That's my main question. But the sort of background question is, do you think that artificial intelligence produces art? Do it. So I will admit that I have not seen much AI produced art that I care much about. But you are much more up on it than I am. So you're going to have to send me send me your best stuff. But in principle, absolutely. Right. I have I have no reason to think that AI could and even sort of presently constituted AI couldn't produce art. But on my account, the much more important question is how is a work of art fitting into a world? And, and I struggle to understand the world of AI and the world so, that me, AI has. And so that's where I, my, my hesitation comes from. In principle, I've got no problem with it, but that's where my hesitation comes from. Let me ask you uh, the same question in a sort of simpler way. Like, who's your favorite composer? Oh, I mean, that's – I hate favorite composer. I mean, like, I love, I love so many, but let's, let's take uh, – Let's take Olivier Messiaen, who I like a lot right now, right? Okay, so yeah. so because it's music, right, we could feed all of Messiaen's compositions yes. into an AI system, and an AI mm-hmm. system could produce a, a new artwork, a new composition that's, yeah. that if you did not know that an AI produced it, you could listen to it and say, oh, this is a Messiaen composition that I've never yeah. heard before. And my question is that you would, I presume, have the same aesthetic experience Mm -hmm. that you have when you listen to Messiaen. I think also because of what you just said, that if I then told you, oh, actually, Mm -hmm. that was a composition that was produced by feeding all of Messiaen's compositions into an AI, and actually an AI produced that, that the experience that you had listening to it after knowing that would be a different experience. And my question is, would you call the second experience an aesthetic experience? Because that would seem that the role of the human artist artist is very important if the second experience is not an aesthetic experience. So, I mean, to a certain degree, I don't think you can separate this from the question of the forgery. And that's specifically the example that you're talking about. A forgery is still a work of art. If you've made a computer that can do a good forgery of, of any artist, that's interesting, and and I might really enjoy it. However, if I'm interested in artist X because, so to stick with Messiaen, for example, I'm interested in the way in which he's moving beyond the kind of the tonal problems that you get in Stravinsky and Schoenberg, and he's got these interesting rhythmic things going on. So I'm interested in the kind of statement that he's trying to make in the context of the development of 20th century classical music. I do not think that a forgery advances that conversation. So it's not doing something for me, but it might be really good to listen to. So I like where this conversation is going. I want to ask it from a different perspective. Yeah. So what about a non-human animal, like when the elephants 
paint. It's not a forgery. It's not the whole catalog being fed into a machine and mm -hmm. having it reconstitute the similar kind of music or something or a similar story. It's, it's an elephant painting a picture. Is that art, even though it's not produced by a human being? No, but it could be cool to look at and we can treat it as art and it might be elephant art, but are we interacting with it in a way where the world in which the elephant is contextualizing its experience is meaningful for us in the same way that it is for the elephant? Why do you hate elephants, Ammon? But now, <laughs> because but they're now just trampling on ours. <laughs> but now it does seem that you're really hanging a lot on the artist because I would say that art produced by AI is not a forgery either. It's no more of a forgery than a karaoke performance is a forgery. Well, it depends on what you're doing with it, right? If you're telling me this was a Beethoven and it was AI Beethoven, then that's a forgery. If you're telling me, oh, hey, this was done in the style of Beethoven, then it's not a forgery. Yeah, but now we're not talking about the aesthetic experience. We're talking about certain kind of epistemological judgments. Like, can you identify right. whatever? But it seems to me that Shannon's question and my question are actually quite parallel, that if we're just talking about the experience, I just put a painting in front of you. You don't know if an elephant made it or a five-year-old made it or if Picasso made it. Yeah. If I just let you listen to something, you don't know if Messiaen made it, if a computer system made it, or if the wind chimes next door made it. So nature made it. You're going to have what I think you would call an aesthetic experience. But once I tell you the, the identity of the artist, in some of those cases, you're going to say, now we're not talking about something like an aesthetic experience. We're talking about a forgery or we're talking about some meaning production that I have no access to because it's the meaning of the, the world, the elephant meaning or nature meaning or something like that. And that seems to me that now it does sound like you're hanging a lot on the artist. So... I want to be careful. I agree with you guys about the aesthetic experience. So in terms of AI, I'm mostly familiar with this with like snippets of text from various chatbots, some of which are quite beautiful in various ways, really do produce certain aesthetic experiences. So yes, that can absolutely happen. And I'm willing to grant that. One of the things that I was trying to get at and why I care as a philosopher so much about aesthetic experience is because I think aesthetic experience reveals features of the way in which we create worlds and the way in which we interact with worlds that other kinds of experience don't. So Understanding that depends on a lot more context than one individual work of art. It depends on understanding how this work of art fits together into a much bigger web of experiences of the world. And in the case of AI and in the case of the elephant, I don't have that context. That doesn't mean that it's a, a worse aesthetic experience, though. It just I mean, means there's less I can do with it. I mean, this is just a straightforwardly Kantian question then. So when you hear birdsong, are you having an aesthetic experience? Yes. I, d I don't see how birdsong and an elephant painting is different. They're not. Well, yeah. Especially when you go <laughs> to the Kantian example of the when they found out that the birdsong was being made by a human, it was no longer perceived as beautiful, but just as annoying, even yeah. though it was still sort <laughs> of it's work a forgery. Of it's a forgery. It's a forgery. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, I think Kant, I agree. Kant's wrong about that. Um, I agree. I mean, Ammon, why is there anything wrong with saying, no, this is a human thing? 
And elephants and AI just don't get to have this experience that I'm calling an aesthetic experience or, or they do, or they're not producing art in the way I'm talking about art. And if I have an aesthetic experience of an elephant painting or an AI painting, yes, that is still an aesthetic experience. But I'm mistaken but, about it. <laughs> but I'm mistaken about it or but it's still not art. So it's still not art. I'll be clear about that. The elephant, the AI might be art, because that depends on this question of how is it produced in the context of the world. But again, remember, what I mean by art is it's the thing that makes a claim in the context of an art world. I'm fine saying that elephants and AI might have aesthetic experiences, because I think that it's connected to sensory systems. I'm more confident in the case of the elephant than AI. But again, like in principle, I'm willing to grant either, right? How is birdsong making a claim in the context of an art world? It's an aesthetic experience, but it's not a work of art. That's where Khan and I agree. Yeah, it's so it seems to me that going back to one of the original questions that we were asking, and you were saying, I don't want to conflate aesthetic experience and works of art because yeah. there's very clear distinctions. And it seems to me that really the work of art, whether it's a stone knife in a museum or it's this uh, polka rendition of the national anthem, emerges from a shared human experience of the world or worlds and an aesthetic experience is a much larger broader category so that you can have aesthetic experience with nature and with artificial intelligence and with all sorts of other kinds of phenomena the really interesting question that comes out of that though the, the way that you make the distinction there is i don't think it's in, in principle impossible that we couldn't share elements of the world with both elephants and ai but just taking them as works of art in the way that humans make works of art actually forecloses that. I need to understand that it's a very different kind of meaning-making activity. If I ever want to have a shared experience with an elephant or a whale or AI, I think that those things might be possible. But they're not possible if I don't foreground the very different world that those kinds of beings probably inhabit. And then you know this question, well, how do you share those worlds? Which I think is a fascinating question. Okay, I want to kind of give you a break uh, from the the hotness of the hot seat for a second <laughs> and sort of tee up a question for you. So what has centering aesthetic experience in the way that you've been talking about it done for your own thinking? So two things. So one, although I'm a professional philosopher, I love and I think this is, this is one of like, the three of us are friends. We have broad interests, and I think a lot of philosophers do, right? I love literature and music and mythology. I love as passionately as I love philosophy. And so for me, these are just intrinsically valuable things. In terms of what I'd call my philosophical project, I, I really want to hang a lot on what I'm calling here non-normativity. I think one of the fundamental problems is as we're now trying to understand the system of exclusions that have taken place in philosophy and in the West, in part through philosophical discourse, we need to understand the way in which we've prioritized and privileged agreement through shared convergent norms and likenesses. And for me, aesthetic experience generally and modernist art in particular have been very valuable ways of trying to break the hold of that strong normativity. The philosophers I love the most talking about art, Derrida, Kierkegaard, Nietzsche, Blanchot, probably just those four. <laughs> I see this sort of counter-tradition within the Kantian tradition of philosophers who are very explicit and say, you know what, the things that I'm talking about might just be weird and idiosyncratic to me. And I'm not trying to develop some sort of shared convergent set of norms. 
I'm engaging with a certain ecstatic experience of the world because I think it gives me a different way of understanding it. And that's the question that's proper to philosophy that I'm the most passionate about. So that was awesome, Ammon. And as we are nearing the end of our fabulous discussion on art, I think given what you just said, you have to go first and tell us what would be your go-to karaoke song at this moment in your life? So my go-to karaoke song, and I still sing it to myself at least once a week, even though no one's around, I sing it to the babies, is Thunder Road in the style of Tom Waits. Oof. And I... I <laughs> He I knows miss, how to bring a bar down. I do, yeah. And I miss I miss going into the bar where everyone wants to sing the popular things and just queuing up the most lugubrious, growly, take my hand, that, you know, that, <laughs> that I possibly can. I, I miss it works. so much. Yeah. What about you, Lee? In fact, my go-to uh, karaoke song was usually Son of a Preacher Man. Oh, that's good. Uh, but I think now, if I was going to a bar, just because I've missed karaoke so much that I might be inclined to do one of the songs that I usually hate because they're done so often at karaoke bars, like, you know, Sweet Caroline or Brown Eyed Girl or something that like really gets the whole crowd sort of singing with you. Just because <laughs> that's your national, I, that's your national anthem is Sweet Caroline. <laughs> <laughs> ba, ba, ba. <laughs> what about you, Shannon? Uh, y'all, you know, I don't really do karaoke. I don't do the reality television and I don't do karaoke. So this shared world is <laughs> is so limited in this case. But I guess, I don't know, maybe hold on. I think that would get the crowd going some journey. Oh, hell yeah. Hell yeah. That's a good one. Yeah, journey. I've been in the hot seat for a while and I'm sweating. So I need a little break. And I'm going to ask you guys to let me know one place where we're in agreement and one place where you think I need to think uh, think it through here. Lee, do you want to go first? Yeah, I mean, I don't know that I have any sort of hard disagreements with what you said. And like some of that I'm going to admit is because I really need to kind of sit with a lot of what you said some more. But I would say that I do agree with what I take to be your original point, which was that the question of aesthetic experience and what aesthetic experience does for us is much more important than questions about what is or isn't art or the determination of any sort of normative standards that aesthetic experiences ought to provide for us. I think maybe where I disagree is, and again, I'm not even sure this is a disagreement because I'm not entirely positive where you came down on this question, but uh, is whether or not this is a thoroughly human experience. Like, can we talk about artists? Can we talk about art? Can we talk about aesthetic experience? outside of the context of the census communists? It's fair, fair question. Yeah, I think that I share um, a similar agreement insofar as I think that the way that you talk about shared worlds without convergent norms is a really fecund way to think about what aesthetic experience is. And I think that that's actually something that I'm going to take forward when I try to teach aesthetics, which I find to be some of the most difficult philosophy to teach. I think I'm more persuaded about art being produced by humans, and I'm kind of disappointed that you didn't bring up the muses. I guess where I'd want to push you a little bit is just where there was that moment 
where we talked about having an aesthetic experience of what we think to be a work of art. And then we discover that in fact, it's not produced by a human and it's either a forgery or a fake, or it's just some kind of facsimile. And what is the status then of that experience? And what is the status of the object that we have that experience of? So I'm not really disagreeing with you. I'd like to push you a little bit more on those discrepancies. We'll have to talk some more later then. More drinks. More drinks. <laughs> yeah, and for our listeners, if you've got things to say about art, about aesthetic experience, or about Ammon's really terrible karaoke choices, please uh, get in contact with us. We have a Facebook page. It's Hotel Bar Sessions Podcast. Also, you can find us on Twitter at Hotel Bar Podcast, or you can visit our website, hotelbarsessions.com. Our next podcast, Lee is going to be the hot seat, and I think, Lee, you're going to be talking about, I'm going to guess, tech? Yeah, I feel like that's what I've been talking about all along. But. She's only going to talk about AI producing paintings. <laughs> yeah, I'm really excited about this. I do. I am going to talk uh, a lot about emergent technologies and hopefully about why I think these are the most important philosophical questions right now. So really excited to have that conversation with you guys next time. Awesome. All right, we got last call at the hotel bar. I'll catch you guys on the flip side. Thank <laughs> you.